We're in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. I hope you have a copy of God's Word this morning. If you do, open up there with me. And guys, we still have our kiddos in here. We were singing about life's first cry, and little 14-month-old Judah was belting it out with the best of us. We welcome the movement because Jesus our Savior said, let the children come. So hang in there, guys. You're doing an awesome job. It might not seem like it, but you are making huge strides and impacts for eternity in the lives of your children and your kiddos. Um, we have our last picnic on the lawn this Monday, just tomorrow. So if you have to join us for that, I hope you can make it tomorrow with Miss Mayor and our children's ministry. And then also, last thing before we get to the work, Awana is back. There's two of sides. Yeah, for that. Not until September 16th, but it's back, okay? September 16th, but what that means, registration is open now. Not now during the sermon, but after service, register. Get ready for that. It is going to be awesome. Mark chapter 6. We continue in a portion of scripture where this is the only account in the whole gospel of Mark where the main character in um, an overwhelming way is, is not the typical Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is the, the main character. He is the hero of the whole redemptive story of scripture. But here Mark takes a little side um, detour here. It's somewhat of a tribute to the life of John the Baptizer. Not John the Southern Baptist. The Greek rendering is baptizer. Baptizer. He was John, known for baptizing people. He wasn't the Southern Baptist. He was a follower of Jesus. Purpose for the renown of God's glory and his own good. John the Baptizer. So we come to Mark chapter 6. Pick it up in verse 14. And we're continuing this overarching theme of the Gospel of Mark. Which is a following we're called to. A faithfulness to the king at all costs. And today we're going to see two extremely powerful truths in connection with what it really looks like to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. It begins here in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And right there in the first clause of the first verse of today's passage, don't worry, we'll move quicker through the rest of it, but right there in the first clause of the first verse of today's passage, there's spinning questions going on here. Here and heard of it. Heard of what? How am I supposed to know what it is? And if you're anything like me, you probably haven't got past Herod. Which Herod is it? I mean, these English translations, couldn't they at least put the guy's last name so we know who the heck we're talking about? If you're anything like me, I feel less spiritual every time I come across Herod in the Bible because I don't know which one they're talking about. I don't have the ministry of the Herod. I want to encourage you with something. I want to provide some comforts of context and orient ourselves within the passage of Scripture before we move on. You are no less spiritual if you've got a Wikipedia every time you come across the name Herod in your Bibles, okay? You're less spiritual if you don't take the time to look it up. Herod Antipas guy we're talking about here in Mark 6. Herod Antipas, he was given regional rulership over Tiberias there in Israel. At this point, the nation of Israel had been divided into quarters under the Roman Empire. In the Tiberias area on the western regions of the Sea of Galilee was one-fourth of the entire nation in which a regional ruler, a tetrarch, that's what it literally means, a tetrarch, someone over a quarter of an area. Herod Antipas was over this Ultimately, under the dominion of the Roman Empire. 
Now it's pretty difficult trying to keep track of all these Herods, especially because of whose daddy was, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, he is known for issuing the great slaughter of all the baby boys when Jesus was born. That's how you remember that. That's how I remember it. That's how I got through my seminary test. Herod the Great, the daddy of Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, is known for issuing the great slaughter of all the baby boys when Jesus was born. Foolishly attempting to squander and squash God's redemptive plan. And Herod the Great, the daddy of Herod Antipas, makes it difficult for us to keep track of all these spirits because Herod the Great had ten wives. Oh my. So with ten wives comes many, many, many little alien Herods running around town in the family. Herod Antipas here, ruling as a tetrarch, the regional ruler over the Tiberius area, and he has now heard of it. It being the powerful, undeniable, transformative name of Jesus. When you got the jungles, we would have paused now for 30 more seconds just to shout hallelujah. Praise the Lord, the King Jesus. Now, he's finally heard of it. Jesus and the disciples at this point, they're continuing their miraculous messianic tours of healing people, casting out demons, but they have not set foot there in Tiberias at the headquarters of King Herod Antipas. Because there at his headquarters, it was um, built upon an old cemetery which was unclean where Jews would not find themselves. Jesus was most recently there in Nazareth, his known-for-nothing hometown of Nazareth. And his own people rejected him. And as a result, looking at the context here, Jesus sends his disciples out, all 12 of them, Judas Iscariot included, anointed, officially an apostle, sent in the authority of Jesus to teach and to demonstrate truth in the same capacity as if Jesus were physically going across the countryside himself. And as a result of these men, these disciples, two by two, going out teaching truth, demonstrating truth, the news has now made its way to Tiberias where Herod Antipas has heard of this. But notice as the story continues, it's not a typical prophet's ministry, but there's more happening. See, it's typical to cast out the demons. It's typical to, to speak profound truths. It's typical to, to do some type of healings and signs and wonders. But the news specifically heard in Tiberias was that these 12 men were raising dead people from the ground. Which led them to the conclusion, this is next level prophecy. It must be a prophet who was already dead and has now risen from the grave himself who is carrying about these gospel teachings and demonstrations. Look at the story continues, the second part of verse 14. Some suggest that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, it's Elijah. Others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So you have these suggestions. Next level um, ministry. So it must be some guy who's risen from the dead himself. And some say, well, it must be Elijah. We know the prophecies from Malachi that teach that before the, the coming great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, that Elijah will return. So perhaps it's him. And others say, no, it's John the Baptist. At this point, John's head has been placed on a platter. We'll see what's in there in a moment. 
He's been dead, and we have these flashbacks of what's happened in the prophet's life. And as a result of what's going on and what King Herod Antipas has heard, he convinces himself. He, he projects his greatest fear and most heaviest of anxieties that John the Baptist, the very man whose head he had severed off from the rest of his body, has come back to life and is performing these signs and wonders. Look at verse 16. But when Herod Antipas, I, write, I wrote that last name in my version. You should as well, so you're not confused next time you open it. But when Herod Antipas heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Stop. I knew he'd come back and get me. I was convinced to behead him. I, I took away his life, and now God is coming back through John the Baptizer. My greatest fears are manifesting themselves. It, must, it, it could be no other than John the Baptizer. And then verses 17 to 20 give us this flashback of why it is such a heavy anxiety for Herod Antipas. A little insight to the relationship that Herod had with John the Baptizer when he was in custody in the, in the prisons of King Herod there in Tiberias. Verse 17 provides this flashback and what you'll notice here, you will notice the fallen condition of humanity. You will notice the epitome of how impoverished our spiritual condition is and especially for those who have limitless earthly resources, especially for those who have controlling authority among different levels of corruption. Verse 17 says this, For it was Herod, Antipas, remember, who had sent and seized John, the baptizer, not the southern Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. As if there weren't enough Herods already, the, the ladies' names are Herodias as well. Apparently she was easy on the eyes. Herodias was his brother Philip's wife. Hang in there guys, we'll keep it G-rated, don't worry. Because he had married her. Okay, get this. Herod Antipas had a brother named Philip. Philip was married to Herodias, who apparently was not Herodias in physical looks, so much to the point that Herod Antipas took a liking to his brother's wife. You with me? I didn't get this off a telenovela. This is the Word of God, okay? Verse 18. For John had been saying, John the baptizer, had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John the baptizer, this is a flashback, he was incarcerated, and he had heard that Herod Antipas had favored his brother's wife, Herodias, and that he was committing adultery. And John the baptizer here, kind of in the same way that Nathan the prophet approached King David in the Old Testament. He spoke truth into his circumstance. He brought to light the transgressions. That which had been violations against the character of Almighty God. And he told him it was not lawful to do this. In verse 19. And some reason it seems like Herod Antipas told Herodias what John the baptizer said. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death because he spoke out against what Herod Antipas and she had done. But she could not do that. It, it wasn't within her power. Verse 20. 
Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous, holy man, and he kept him safe. The situation here, he commits adultery with his brother's wife. John the baptizer, this holy, righteous man, this follower of Jesus as Lord and Savior, speaks the truth into Herod Antipas's life. And his wife is livid. She wants him dead. But for some reason, even though Herod was spoken against in his sinful condition, he was intrigued by John. The grace and the truth compelled him, even though it made him squirm and uncomfortable in his vulnerable situation, to the point where he kept him safe from Herodias herself. Look at the end of verse 20. This is where it's really going to hit you in the gut, so hang on. When Herod Antipas heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, that doesn't really hurt to listen to. Notice what ensues. Here's a king, limitless earthly resources, great wealth, great authority. To a favorable point where he enjoyed the fellowship with John the baptizer. To the point where he even enjoyed the truth that John spoke into his life. Even when it was as awkward and uncomfortable as it may have been. But in hearing the truth and even enjoying some of the gracious moments and aspects of it. It never transformed his life. Not because Jesus ain't able. But because he chose in his heart never to receive it. Herod Antipas enjoyed it, but he never professed the need for that truth in his life and thus never experienced a transformation of life that could have saved his very soul. Just pause here real quick. We'll continue on. I want you to hear me clearly here because I don't want you to stop doing this. So many of you, I'm so grateful for, after service, You'll come by and you'll say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. You just, you just preached so well. That, that was a, a powerful message you preached. And man, that is awesome. I, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Because too often, people don't go out of their way to make a compliment, right? I'm sure you've experienced that. But people, whatever reason, they always go out of their way to give you a slight or a, a negative connotation, right? They always let you know what you messed up or what you screwed up on. But very rarely do people go out of their way and ensure you hear a compliment based on something you've said or done, right? Any amens, please? Just one amen? Okay, I'm not crazy. So don't stop doing that, okay? But let me offer a little extended truth to this situation. For as grateful as I am on those occurrences, when you encourage me and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. That was a great message. You know what would cause my heart to brim over with joy and gratitude even more? It's hearing from you. As God's people, I've been entrusted with a shepherd. Say, Pastor, I want to share with you how your message last week has totally transformed my life. It wasn't just a good message, but here's how I've humbled myself under the authority of Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and He has wrecked my world, turning it upside down, but I am just so loving the ongoing transformation of life as a result of God speaking His message through you. You hear me? Amen? Don't hear me wrong either, though. Please don't stop. 
I need your encouragement. That's what Herod was doing. Good pastor. Good, good sermon, John. Keep it going. No, it's never, it never changed my life, though. Continue in this story with me, verses 21 to 26. But, in a pro, uh, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, so you've got this situation, uh, a banquet in honor of Herod's um, birthday in which he is put on with his resources, and Herodias' daughter comes out and puts on this display, this performance of skill and dance or whatever um, happens there. And it pleases Herod to the point where he pridefully gets up and he says this, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, now at this point we don't know if her mother Herodias set her up to it or not. It seems like she had some inside information and some ulterior motives here. So she went out to her mother and asked, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the baptizer. Verse 25. Herodias' daughter came in immediately with haste to King Herod Antipas and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Look at verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths, his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He was a man of such stand-up great integrity, wasn't he? A man of morals and ethics. Don't be confused there. This had everything to do with him being trapped within his own pride. He made a big show. He was ready to give some physical materialistic possessions to this daughter of Herodias. But she asked for the head of John the Baptist. And rather than humbling himself within the greater integrity of God's character and who John the Baptist was, he was trapped within his own pride and had to carry out the wishes of her daughter. We've got this here. Think, think about what this situates yourself in that situation, what that may have really looked like during that moment. Verse 27. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. You've got the party and the banquet going on, you've got everything happening. You've got John incarcerated who's had this very hospitable relationship with King Herod for, for whatever reason, out of respect. And then at once, it's gone. At once, trapped in his pride, he sends an executioner to go sever his head from his body, gets his head, went up, beheaded him in the prison, verse 28, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, John the Baptizer's disciples, they came took his body, laid it in a tomb. There's a lot of foreshadowing going on here, the reason for Mark putting it here in the Gospel 
looking forward to that which Jesus would ultimately do on behalf of all humanity, offering himself over. And then Jesus not even having his own disciples to carry his body away. Jesus not even having his own tomb to be buried in. What I told you a moment ago was we're going to see two powerful things here about following after Jesus. I want you to catch this before we go this morning. What we see in John the Baptist's life here is one is that when it comes to following Jesus, and you've got your pens out, so I want you to get this before we get our first, or these two points here this morning. Follower of Jesus is anyone who has them as their personal Lord and Savior. A disciple of Jesus is anyone who follows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Remember, we looked at that last week. A disciple of Jesus is not necessarily Baptist or Southern Baptist. A a disciple of Jesus is not necessarily evangelical or even completely associated with Christianity. A disciple of Jesus is anyone who follows Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And in that following of Jesus, there's an ongoing transformation of life. There's a belonging to authentic biblical community. That's what I mean. That's what we mean at Katie's First when we talk about a disciple's call, a disciple's following of Jesus. And here's the two things John the Baptist's life shows us here. The first is this. Following Jesus, the call of following Jesus is to point toward Jesus. In all things, in all situations, as a follower of Jesus, we have the utmost privileged calling of making much of Jesus in every capacity possible to us. I know it's not explicitly stated here in this narrative, but that's the exact life that John the Baptizer epitomized. Don't believe me? Take Scripture's word for it. Not just any verse, though. The words of God Himself, the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 28, speaks about John the Baptizer. It says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is Jesus himself saying, here's a guy who got it right in following me. Here's a guy who his very existence, entire being of existence, was all about making much of me, pointing toward me. He's making an example here because even as great as John was, those in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom, are greater than John. But we know with certainty, this disciple John, this follower of Jesus, John the Baptist, his calling as a disciple was to point toward Jesus in all things. Look at the example he, he shows in his own life in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 25 to 30. And I'm taking the time to flip there because we don't know much else of John 3 other than John 3.16. But you go past that church... You've got 17 that talks about Jesus not coming to condemn the world. You go past that, you have the original Nick at night with Nicodemus meeting Jesus and during the dark hours. And then you come to John chapter 3, verse 25, where he's interacting with his disciples. Jesus comes in on the scene and his disciples are worried because of this. Jesus is taking his followers. Dadgum it, one more page. Now discussion arose, verse 25, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he's baptizing, and all the people are going to him. Verse 27, John answered. A person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Literally saying, I'm not the anointed one. He is. Look toward him. But I've been sent before him. Verse 29. The one who was the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him. That's me. It rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And the phrase we're so familiarly associated with John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. The call of the disciple is one where the entire existence of your being, every fiber of your being, is pointing toward Jesus and always making much of Him. Now go back with me to Mark chapter 6, and here's the second point. You've got the call that always points to Jesus, and then you have the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship, as we see in the life of John, as the baptizer who gave his life, is one to speak truth into our culture. Whatever the price, whatever level, level of sacrifice that it requires for us to authentically, unapologetically, passionately, sincerely, graciously, always speak truth into the culture around us, that's the cost of discipleship. And that's the cost we're called to gladly bear as we always point toward Jesus as Savior. It goes without saying already here in the narrative, the cost that John was open and already ready for and willing toward. I want you to notice one more thing before we wrap up. Jesus said John did it well. In John's calling as a disciple, he pointed all toward Jesus, making much of him in everything. And then he considered the cost and paid the premium that was required that even to the very end of losing his head on a platter, he would be able to speak truth into the culture around him. But John's business of speaking truth into the culture around him was not all about telling the culture how wrong they were. Because the good news in Jesus is so much better than the bad news that they're all about outside here, guys. You say, wait a minute, how do you know that, Pastor? It doesn't say that here. I mean, John, John says... Hey, it's not lawful to commit adultery. John is calling out and saying, Harris, you've messed up here. You're wrong before the holy character and standard of God Almighty. You know how I know he was gracious in his truth sharing? Verse 26 of Mark 6. Herod Antipas was sorry that he killed John. Even in a lost, unsaved world, when we speak truth in grace to a lost culture around us, they don't write you off. They hear it. They may even enjoy it sometimes. They always have the decision to reject or accept it. If John didn't deal graciously with Herod in speaking truth, he would have never expressed this sorrow that is the very same sorrow to describe Jesus' grieving when in the Garden of Gethsemane. Disciples' call is always the point toward and make much of Jesus. And the cost is whatever price demanded of us that we might have an opportunity to speak truth and grace in the culture around us. Look at Mark 6 here. 
This passage reminds us of this ongoing sacrifice, this ongoing killing of God's messengers. Right? Israel, the nation, the apple of God's eye, the nation that God decided to establish to bring forth Messiah through. They were the most esteemed and privileged nation of all planet earth. Not because they deserved it, but because of God's grace. And with that came the greatest responsibility as well. Time after time, they squandered it. In this narrative here, just a reminder, where even within the boundaries of the nation of Israel, God's messengers being killed in slaughter time and time again. Forsaking the call of discipleship. Forsaking the cost that following Jesus demands of us. And with that in mind, and with this distraction up here, yeah, I've had it up here for a purpose. Kiddos, you've been watching? Adults, you've been watching? You're putting it up here. It's kind of awkward to talk about like the idea, really. A man's 8 to 10 pound head being on a platter, served up as a gift. And it seems disgusting to think about. It seems just atrocious, tragic. What this narrative tells me, church, I think there's much more to consider. I think there's been some kids, my own, wondering, is there really a severed head of a man's body here in this platter? Here at Antipas' birthday included a platter being tilted over and that head would have tumbled end over end as a gift to Herodias' daughter. And that seems disgusting. And I think there's something more tragic to consider. Being nothing in here at all. The absence of any discipleship that humbles ourselves to follow our King who gave everything on our behalf. Where we, living in a nation where we are privileged more than anybody on planet Earth, in a country that has done more for the image of God and humanity and personal freedoms than any in all of history. And we think it's a grace. Thank you, Lord, that we're not having to be persecuted. Please, Lord, continue our situation so, so I don't have to be persecuted. Lord, please, I just want to pull my kids in so I can push away the, the possibility of hardships on account of their faith in Jesus. What's more tragic, more disgusting to consider than a man's head being served up on a platter is the possible reality of us thinking that a generous government is the reason that we're not being persecuted when the reality the reality is more likely we're not worthy of martyrdom. We're not worthy of counting in all joy to give our very existence for the cross of Jesus and He crucified. Following Jesus has nothing to do with our good works for salvation. Not once, what, whatsoever. But based on God Himself giving His all for you, 
He calls you to make much of Him and point toward Him with your entire being. And He demands of you to realize it is extremely expensive. And whatever cost, whatever price tag it is in your life, in your spheres of influence, that you might have a privileged opportunity to share truth of Jesus in grace, even to death, there's no greater cause to be about. So I want to invite you to stand. I want to pray over us. We're going to have an opportunity to, to continue worshiping. And then after our service, after we sing this song, I'm going to stay out fr up front here as we're dismissed. And if God's prompting you to respond, I'll be here. Pastor Zach will be here to, to walk you through prayer or whatever decision the Spirit's prompting you to make. God's not done here. This is the most holy, most sacred moment of the whole week because we are gathered as the bride to consider our calling and to consider the cost. So as I pray over you, seek the Father with me. And let's worship together. Father, we thank you that you paid the ultimate price once for all. Where we stood condemned in our sinful condition, you loved us too much to leave us there where our transgressions left us with irreconcilable differences, you relentlessly pursued us in love that we might have a hope, that we might be restored, that we might have an eternally secure transformation of life. Thank you, God, for that. And Lord, if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice, anyone online with us who has enjoyed hearing the truth of Jesus, who knows about the truth of Jesus, but is yet to profess their need of Jesus as Savior. May they come find me after service. May they message me, as, uh, me on Facebook that I might get in touch with them and be privileged to walk them through those next steps. And for the rest of us here, God, we are open and willing, committed to the call of discipleship, whatever the cost.